Open your Bibles with me to the book of Zechariah. Can you believe we're back in Zechariah? I'm so excited. So the book of Zechariah, I don't have time to recap the first eight chapters of Zechariah. I'm going to do a quick, just couple of minute uh, reference for you on our slides. But man, just wait until you see what we get into today. It is so much fun. And what this chapter is going to do is it helps us understand the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy. So let's have a word of prayer and we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I, I can't believe, I, I should have more faith to trust you. But the more that I study, it's just amazing what you have done in prophecy. So Lord, help us as we see this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Zechariah chapter 9, let's start reading in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof. When the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. And Hamath also shall border thereby. Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise... And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust and fine gold as the mire of the streets. How many of you are having revival already? Believe me, when you see what this is all about, you're going to love it. Okay, verse 4. Behold, the Lord will cast her out and will smite her power in the sea and she shall be devoured with fire. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall see it. And be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectation, shall be ashamed. And the king shall perish from Gaza. And Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth. And his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he shall be as... I'm sorry, shall be for our God. And he shall be as a governor in Judah and Ekron as a Jebusite. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth. And no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now have I seen with mine eyes. So let me give you a little bit of our method. Some of you have not been here for the study of Zechariah. What we do as we study the Bible is we have some foundational principles. The first foundational principle is we believe every word of the Bible. Every word of God is true. Every word of God is pure. None of them are there by accident. We don't change any words of the Bible. We explain words of the Bible, but we don't change them. We just believe the Bible as it's written. We also believe that the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. Now, we, we also use other commentaries. I you know, it'd be silly for me to believe that God has given me some wisdom that he never gave any other man. So I do consult commentaries before every sermon. But the best way to explain passages of Scripture is by how did God deal with that subject in other passages of Scripture. So we do compare verse by verse. The other thing that we believe is that God has spoken to us through his word. And so that we're going to learn some things today. So the purpose of prophecy. First of all, let's get a definition of prophecy. Prophecy is God writing history before it happens. So keep your place in the book of Zechariah and go to Isaiah chapter 46. 
God writing history before it happens. So if God was going to write a book and he wanted us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this book came from him, what would he do? So Isaiah 46 and verse 9, all the history teachers need to have this verse memorized. This is the command to study history. Remember the former things of old. And all the history teachers said, Amen. That's very few of us, just very, very few. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. So now how is he going to demonstrate that there's no one like him? Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So how does he prove that he's God? He's going to declare the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times, he's going to declare the things that are not yet done. And whatever God says is going to happen, it's going to happen. So when God prophesies something, you might as well write it as history. So prophecy is God writing history before it happens. So just a little review. So the book of of Zechariah is divided into three sections. So you have chapters 1 through 6. These are the visions, and they can be divided into 8 or 10 visions. And we've looked at those already. And then chapters 7 and 8 are general instructions to God's people. So they were written to Israel, but we as Christians, because we are God's people, we can learn a lot of things from them, even though they weren't written directly to us. But now, chapters 9 through 14, these are specific prophecies concerning Christ's first and second coming. So when people study Zechariah, these are the chapters that they really enjoy. And let me just tell you something. These, so chapters 9 through 11 deal with Christ's first coming. Chapters 12 through 14 deal with Christ's second coming and his rule on the earth. But all of it is amazing. I'm going to show you some stuff this morning that's unbelievable. I can't wait to get to it, so i got to get through this fast. These chapters, so chapters 9 through 14, they cover the same time periods as those 10, 8 or 10 visions in chapters 1 through 6. So just as, you know, we, we've said this before, when we Westerners, when we think of, of literature... We start at the beginning, start at point A, and it's a straight line. We think chronologically, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. In Hebrew literature, it starts like this, and then it loops back over itself. And then it moves forward a little bit more and loops back over itself. So when you have First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, it's a lot of the same information. The, the Jewish Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a lot of the same information that's retold and a little bit more information, then it's retold, and you learn a few more things. That's what happens. We get some information from the visions, but now we're going to get some direct information from the direct prophecies, okay? So that's what's going on in this chapter. So the book covers the time from Zechariah's time to the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. So keep your place in Zechariah and go to Acts chapter 1. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus Christ has already lived his sinless life and he's died on the cross for you and for me. And he's risen from the dead. And now he's been walking around with his disciples. Isn't that crazy? 
Now he's about to ascend into heaven. And right before he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1, and look at verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, so this is disciples talking to Jesus, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Do you see that? Will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That is the culmination of all of Hebrew prophecy. All of it is the establishment of the kingdom. So this, the book of Zechariah, it covers the time from Zechariah and the rebuilding of the temple all the way through the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And he's coming back, isn't he? He is coming back. All right. So now, there's an important principle that's going to be vital in understanding, really, any prophecy, but especially Ezekiel chapter, I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter 9 that we're about to get into. And that is this principle of dual fulfillment. The principle of dual fulfillment. So remember, Zechariah, God has Zechariah prophesy to Israel some very specific prophecies. Is that right? Some of you are zoning out on me. It's going to be cool, but I got to do this setup. So dual, dual, this, this principle of dual fulfillment, God was speaking directly to Israel in their day and at their time. There was specific information for them, and there is, so we call it the principle of dual fulfillment, but in order for there to be a dual fulfillment, there's also the principle of partial fulfillment. The principle of partial fulfillment. I've used this illustration before, but, but repeating it will help you to see this. So go with me to the book of Luke chapter 4. Principle of dual fulfillment. So get Luke 4 and get Isaiah chapter 60. Let's make it 61. All right, so... Luke chapter 4, look at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Verse 16. And when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. All right? Now look at what it says in verse 21. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture. What's that next word? Fulfilled in your ears. All right? So Jesus Christ said, I'm here. I'm here to preach glad tidings. I'm here to set the captives free. This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now go to Isaiah 61 so you can see what he was reading to them. Principle of dual fulfillment, the pr principle of partial fulfillment. Okay, Isaiah 61.1. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, is that where the verse ends? Look at what it says next. And the day of the vengeance of our God. So this is when Jesus was in Nazareth, that was the partial fulfillment of Isaiah 61.1. The complete fulfillment is when Jesus comes back in the day of the vengeance of our God. So look at 1 Thessalonians. I'll tell you where to turn as soon as I know. Okay, let's try 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished from with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the power of his glory, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So that will be the complete fulfillment of the vengeance of our God. But there was a partial fulfillment when Jesus revealed himself to the people. So you have this principle of dual fulfillment. And in order for there to be a principle of dual fulfillment, there has to be the principle of partial fulfillment. Let's go back to Zechariah chapter 9. So look at verse 1. Oh, and let me, let me tell you a little bit... You know, there's a difference between teaching the Bible and preparing a sermon. You know, sometimes when you have a sermon that you want to prepare, there's a subject that you're wanting to help people with, and you'll develop an outline, and that outline will be supported with Scripture so that you can teach people what that topic is about. And we've been doing that with building something eternal. Preaching through a book of the Bible is much different than that. And sometimes it'll seem like it's disjointed because we have to communicate what is in the text. And that verse, going verse by verse, that verse might take you someplace completely different from the next verse. Are you all with me on that? And we're going to see a little bit of that today, which naturally suits me and my ADD, right? So I get to be all over the place because Zechariah chapter 9 is all over the place. So it's a lot of fun. Verse 1, Zechariah 9, 1. The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach, the burden of the word of the Lord. Now, when you see that burden, um, so you're in Zechariah, go back a couple of books to Nahum. I think maybe when Nahum's parents named him, that the dad was just clearing his throat. It came out Nahum, and that's what they called him. That's what they called him. But look at what it says, chapter 1 and verse 1. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, okay? So you see, there's, it starts with a burden. Look at the next book, the book of Habakkuk. 
Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk, the prophet, did see. When the prophet, when God gives a prophet a burden, that is, it's, it's a pronouncement of a calamitous judgment on that nation. That's, that's the burden. And yet, any time, there's, there's another, obviously that's the biblical definition of the word burden in these prophets, but a burden is any kind of weight that's put on someone. Right? All of us have different burdens at different times. And let me just to make it personal. As a, as a preacher of the Word of God, every time I stand up to communicate the Word of God, it's a burden. Because there are people, like I'm preaching on prophecy, and there are people that are going through trouble. How is that prophecy going to help those people that are going through trouble? There's a burden that comes along with it. There's another time that it's a burden. It's always a burden to tell people when they're doing something wrong. It's, it's not fun. You know, as a young preacher, your favorite thing to do is to preach hard sermons. The older you get, if, after you've lived a little longer and you've had trouble in your own life, you recognize your own sinfulness, you recognize the struggles of the people around you that you love. I don't want to preach hard about what you're doing anymore. That's a burden. It's a burden that we carry. All of us parents know this, especially when you need to correct your older children. It's a burden. You care so much about them that you have to straighten out that behavior because you know what will happen to them if they continue that behavior. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So there's a burden that comes along with it. But I don't know that we understand how often this burden is used. In the book of Isaiah, I'm going to give you some examples. I have a few of them listed here. Chapters 13 and 14, you have a burden of, of Babylon, and that burden was idolatry. In Isaiah 15 and 16, there's Moab, and th what their burden was formal religion. God hates formalism. He hates it. Then, uh, in Isaiah 17, Damascus is compromised. Look at Isaiah 17.1. I want you to see something here. Anytime you see Damascus referenced in Scripture, always notice it. The reason that Damascus is so important in Scripture, you know it's the capital of Syria. It's the oldest continually functioning city in the world. So when you see what God is going to do to Damascus, that shows the future of the entire world. So look at Isaiah chapter 17 and verse 1. What's the second word of that verse? The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. It shall be a ruinous heap. So th that's a burden. And why is that? Because of their compromise. In Isaiah 18, God speaks against Ethiopia. Look at what it says. Isaiah 18.1. Woe to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, that sendeth ambassadors by the sea, even in vessels of bulrushes upon the water saying, Go, ye swift messengers, to a nation scattered and peeled, to a people terrible from their beginning there or hitherto, a nation meted out and trodden down, whose land the rivers have spoiled. And they go on and they, it's a, they, they send missionaries, but they teach a false religion. Sometimes we as Christians, we hear there's a missionary going to a foreign land and we're thankful for it. But we shouldn't be thankful for it if they're not teaching the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And so that's a, that's a burden that's put on them. Uh, Egypt is the world. Persia, luxury. Edom, the flesh. Arabia, war. Palestine, apostate religion. Tyre, commercialism. These are the nations that are identified in Scripture and a burden that goes along with them. So when the Bible says, go back to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 1, when you see a little word like that, the burden, the burden, don't just read past it. God cares about that. Now, here's the fun thing. Go to the book of Matthew chapter 11. Look at verse 28. Hard to come to Grace Baptist without a Bible. Matthew chapter 11, look at verse 28. I might preach a message just on burden. Uh, There's so much more information on this. But look what it says in verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. The Bible, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says, woe to you Pharisees. Why? Because you heap burdens on the backs of God's people. And you know, there are religions that do that. They heap burdens on the backs of people. It's such a sad thing when you go to a place and you you see what these religions do to these people. Um, Dave McCracken, we were on a missions trip in Mexico and Monterey, Mexico, and Laura's brother Paul and and brother Dave and some others, they went over to Mexico City to meet with another missionary. And while they were there, they saw this, this huge courtyard where there's a huge Roman Catholic cathedral in the capital city of Mexico, Mexico City. And there's this cobblestone courtyard, and you would see people, they'd take this a little white, uh, like, like handkerchief, and they'd put it in front of them, And they would move it in front of them and they would kneel and they would go from one end of the courtyard to the church on their knees, praying that God will forgive them. And by the time they get to the door, that that sheet or that, 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 that handkerchief, that napkin is bloody from the blood of their knees as they're begging God for forgiveness for sin. How many of you are thankful that you don't need to shed your blood for forgiveness of sins, that Jesus Christ shed his What happened? Someone, some priest, someone heaped a burden on those people. They believe they have to do that for forgiveness of sin. That's heaping a burden. If you're in the Middle East and and, and you, you practice Islam, somehow you've got the burden. You've got to get to Mecca somehow. You've got to do a pilgrimage. You have to do these things. They're heaping burdens on people. God does give us burdens, for me, God's given me a burden to teach the Word of God. And that's, when I'm not teaching the Bible, I'm not happy. When I'm not teaching someone something, I'm not happy. He's put that burden in me. For example, next month, I've got the opportunity, I'm going to be going to Egypt. And Brother Fagali has asked me to come. You know, they translated our Y Baptist book into Arabic several years ago. And it was, I can't believe it's all the way 2011 when I went to Lebanon and taught in Beirut to these pastors from the Middle East. Well, we're going to be in this place. It's halfway between Alexandria, Egypt, and Cairo, Egypt. And we're going to be teaching about 100 pastors, Arabic-speaking pastors from all over the Middle East, Egypt and Iraq, Syria, Jordan, 
They're, they're going to be all, from all over the Middle East. They're going to come there. And you might say, Pastor, why are you going there? I have a burden to help pastors know how to teach the Bible. God has given me that burden. I'd love to do it a lot more than I can. That's the burden that God has given me. And I wonder, what is the burden that God has given you? And here's the question that you always have to ask. Is the burden from God or is the burden from men? Jeremiah talks about this. And God speaks through Jeremiah and he says, who are these prophets that are putting burdens on you? I didn't send them. They didn't speak from me. And the burdens they're putting on you are not from me. Sometimes we have this idea of man-made religion where men heap burdens on our backs. You know, in, in the past, in Christianity, sometimes that is the way that you, you have to dress a certain way to be a Christian or you have to do all of these things in order to be a Christian. No. No, you know what you have to do to be a Christian? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Amen? And yet, I like this, God doesn't put a burden on you. He puts a burden in you. And that burden in you is to do something for him. What, is, what has God put in you? And if you're saying, man, I don't know, maybe you need to ask him. God, what do you want me to do with my life for you? Give me a burden for your people. Give me a burden for your work. Let's go on. So look with me at, this, this might sound a little disjointed. I'm going to make a shift. So Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 1 is the history of a pretty significant person. And it's the history of the conquests of Alexander the Great. So when you read this text, it's an amazing thing as you look through the order of how this happened. So when you look at the people, so you have Hadrach and Damascus. Do you see that in verse 1? Hadrach and Damascus. Hadrach, no one ever knew where that was until they found a certain piece of literature, and the Bible was the only place other than that piece of literature where it was mentioned. The Word of God is true. All right, so then Damascus and Hamath. So Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath, those are all Syrian cities. I don't know if I made a slide for this. I didn't. So Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath are all Syrian cities. Now, if you go to verse 3, Tyus, verse 2, Tyus, or Tyrus and Zidon, Tyrus and Zidon, Tyrus and Zidon, they're Phoenician cities along the coast of Lebanon. So Lebanon, I mentioned that I was there. When, when you hear about the cedars of Lebanon in the Bible, when I was in Lebanon, Brother Fagali said, we're going to go to the cedars. We're going to go to the cedars. And I thought, well, that's fun. We're going to go see some trees. What that means is you're going to go up in the mountains, and it's about 10,000 feet up. And what happens is the mountains are ten or 11,000 feet in Lebanon, and it goes straight down to Damascus to the Mediterranean Sea. It's amazingly beautiful. And along that coast, on the coasts of Lebanon, that's where these cities were, the coast of Lebanon. Then Ashkenon, Gaza, and Ekron, Ashdod, those are Philistine cities. And it's interesting, the Philistine city that's not mentioned that you would think of the most is Gath, who was from Gath. Who remembers? Goliath. Goliath was from Gath, but that had already been brought into Israel. So it's talking about these cities here. All right. And so verse 1, we, remember we're talking about that dual fulfillment 
partial fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment is still in the future because look at verse 1 again, second half of the verse. When the eyes of man, as of all the tribes of Israel, shall be toward the Lord. So obviously that is in the future and that takes place in the millennium. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was an amazing leader. So his father was Philip of Macedon, so Alexander II. He's Alexander III. Alexander's son was Alexander IV. Do you all see how that works? That's the... So Alexander, he was somewhere between 19 and 20 years old when, when his father was killed. His father was murdered, assassinated, and he became king. And he conquered the known world in the next 11 years. So at 28 years old, he was, he was so upset, he was mourning because he said there are no more worlds to conquer. No more worlds to conquer. So when you start looking at the names of these cities that we find in the scriptures, these are the cities that Alexander comes and conquers. And that's the history that you see in this text. So what's fun is the biblical history, when you compare it to secular history, it always ties together. But here's the difference. This was written 300 years before Alexander. Because prophecy is God writing history before it happens. Alexander is the partial fulfillment of the dual fulfillment that will happen in Zechariah chapter 9. Now, let's see. I'm going to skip over some of this. So, at the Battle of Isis in 333 B.C., Alexander the Great, he defeated Darius. And Darius is the Darius that's mentioned in Zechariah, but it's a Darius that is his, one of his descendants. And so he conquers Persia, he conquers Babylon. It's an interesting thing. Alexander died. He was poisoned, most people think. He was 32 or 33 years old, and he was poisoned and died in Babylon, of all places. So there's so many interesting correlations that I can't get into that I know many of you are already making those connections in your mind. So what, he, what happened when he defeated Darius, well, that opened the door to Syria and to Egypt, and then he goes and he conquers Syria and Egypt. So the prophet here in verse 1, he has in view the destruction of Damascus, the cities of the Syrian border, and he makes this sweep. But what we see in the text is that Alexander ended up being an instrument of God. Of course, Alexander wasn't a good guy, but God can use who he wants to. Now, let me show you a couple of things that are really interesting. We're going to get back to Alexander in a minute, but look at verse 3, or verse 2. And Hamath also shall border thereby Tyrus and Zidon, though it be very wise. Do you see that? Though it be very wise. Very interesting. Tyre and Sidon, S-I-D-O-N, that's the way that we would pronounce it now, T-Y-R-E, Tyre and Sidon, those are the two cities that are being spoken of here. They were about 30 miles apart. And Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Tyre, and so the city of Tyre had moved about a half a mile out into the ocean, and they built their city on a rock with 150-foot walls, and it was impregnable. It was impregnable. So they, there were different people that had tried to conquer the city of Tyre. 
One of the things that happened was the Assyrians under Shalmaneser, they besieged it. Listen, they had a siege on that city for five years and they couldn't take it. Then the Chaldeans under Nebuchadnezzar tried for 13 years, 13 years of a siege and they finally gave up and went away. Why was that? Because they were in the middle of the ocean with 150 foot walls. Nobody could get to them. They had food from the from the ocean, and and they were completely satisfied. Not only that, because of their trade routes, they were the wealthiest city of that time. And look look how the Bible describes them. Verse 3, And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold, and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire of the streets. And here's what happens. Remember, the Chaldeans for 13 years tried to take it and couldn't do it. The, 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 who was it? The Assyrians had tried to take it for five years and couldn't do it. Alexander came and conquered them in seven months. How did he do that? Remember, I told you that the city of Tyre had been destroyed and it was rubble. So what Alexander did was he took all that rubble and he put it out in the ocean and made a walkway, a causeway right to the city. And he went in and took it. Seven months. Seven months. It's a very interesting thing. Why was Tyre so powerful? And look at what it says in verse 2, though it be very wise. Do you see that? Though it be very wise. Well, there was a certain power that was behind Tyre. Keep your place in Zechariah. Go to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came again unto me, so that's Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, Look at this, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. Yet thou art a man and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. So here's what they thought. We are like gods. We have our kingdom set up in the sea. No one can take us. What was the power behind the throne? Look at verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. You see, you have the prince of Tyrus, but who is really the leader, the king of Tyrus. And look who that is. And say unto him, thus saith the Lord, thou sealest up the sum. What are those next three words? Full of wisdom. What did it say in Zechariah chapter 9? Though thou be wise. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now, how many of you think that the prince of, of Tyre had actually been in the garden of Eden? No. This is obviously talking about somebody else. And now look at what it says in verse 14. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. This is talking about Satan himself. Satan himself was the power behind Tyrus, behind their kingdom, behind their wealth, behind their wisdom. And God used Alexander to snuff him out like that. See, here's the thing that we need to understand. We're not dualists. There's a partial fulfillment to this prophecy of Tyre. The problem is, if you could go to Tyre today, they still fish from there. 
It's going to be rebuilt and God is ultimately going to destroy it and it will never, ever rise again. Now, that's when you go back to Zechariah 9. You see what I mean about there's so many different disjointed things in this text. Gaza, Gaza, if you look at verse 6 or verse 5, and Ashkelon shall see it and fear, Gaza also shall see it and be very sorrowful. Now, some of you may have already read this slide. It's up on the screen for you. Gaza held out for five months before Alexander. The king Battus was dragged to death. 10,000 of his inhabitants are slaughtered and the rest are sold into bondage. Here's the problem. The next place that Alexander was going was Jerusalem. Look at verse 8. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth, and no oppressor shall pass through them any more. For now have I seen with mine eyes. This is volume three. My set is, is a four-volume set of the works of Josephus. So Josephus was a, was a Jewish historian who was also a Roman general. And so he, he gets the history of the Jewish people during that time. And in... I, I, let me do this. I think I actually have it if you want to write it down and look it up for yourself. In this book... It's Antiquities, uh, book 11, chapter 8. Listen to what happens. Now, Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, made haste to go up to Jerusalem. And Jaduah, the high priest, when he heard that, was in agony and under terror, not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians, since the king was displeased at his foregoing disobedience. So here's what happened. Alexander wanted them to pay taxes to him. Well, because of the way that Darius had delivered the nation of Israel, they were faithful to Persia. And so the Jewish king said, no, we're going to give our money to Nebuchadnezzar. They put their money on the wrong guy. So when Nebuchadnezzar was, I'm sorry, when Darius was conquered by Alexander the Great, now Alexander, not known for his forgiveness was coming against Israel and was going to destroy Jerusalem next. Can you imagine what that was like? So Jaduah, the king, I'm sorry, the high priest, he had the people bring sacrifices. This is about 330 B.C. This is in that intertestamental period where the Bible is silent. He has them make sacrifices and pray and, and fast. And then he had a dream. This, this is in, the, in Josephus. Jaduah, the high priest, had a dream, and God told him to put on his priestly vestments, so that is his, his purple garments and his scarlet garments and, and his, his special headdress. And then he had a breastplate of solid gold with the name Yahweh, the name of God, on it. And he led the entire city out in a procession to meet Alexander the Great. Can you picture this? His conquering armies coming. The high priest leading the people out. The king had died. And he's taking them out to meet Alexander the Great. And Alexander saw the procession. And he stopped. 
He looked at him. And listen to what happened. When Alexander was not far from the city, the high priest led a venerable procession to meet him. When Alexander saw the vestments, that's the special clothes, he saluted the high priest, adored the name of Yahweh, and said he had seen this in a dream at Dios in Macedonia. How about that? It's so amazing that God gave Alexander the same dream that he gave the high priest. And God delivered Israel. And do you know what Alexander did? Look at the text. Verse 8. And I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by. Do you know what Alexander did? He passed him by. He passed him by. That is the partial fulfillment of this text. Do you know what Jaduah Jadua did? He gave him copies of the book of Daniel, chapters 7 and 8, where God had actually prophesied by the prophet Daniel about Alexander himself. When God's people believe God's word, it brings deliverance. The purpose of prophecy. Look at this. What is the purpose of prophecy? To teach us that God knows the future. Remember, Daniel was written 70 years before Zechariah, and Jaduah the high priest several hundred years later, was able to give those copies to Alexander the Great. And God delivered those people through his word and through believing God to teach us that God knows the future. Purpose of prophecy is to teach us to trust God's plan. Do you ever, is it ever hard for you to trust that God really does have a plan for this world? When you're in the middle of it, when you're in the trouble, it's tough. Then to teach us to look for our deliverance. He is our deliverer, folks. He is our deliverer, and for us to pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. What's the ultimate deliverance that God's going to give us? He's going to take us out of this place. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that time, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to believe God. And just like the high priest did with Alexander, give somebody the Bible and say, hey, this is what God said about you. This is what God said about you. This is what God said about you. And what did God say about them? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? The purpose of prophecy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. There's so much more that we could discuss from your word from this chapter.